Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction, a podcast for readers, writers, and lovers of science fiction. I'm Rob Wolf with the It's a Mad, 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 Mad Virtual World episode. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Carl Schrader about his novel Stealing Worlds, a near-future thriller about economic revolutionaries, surveillance capitalism, augmented reality live-action role-playing, and a little bit of burglary. A lifelong resident of Canada, Carl is the author of 11 books and a professional futurist who writes both traditional fiction and has also been commissioned by the Canadian Army to explore possible futures through rigorously researched fiction. Carl is Skyping with me now from his home in Toronto. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Rob. I think there is a lot packed into Stealing Worlds. It was a bit of a challenge for me to figure out how to begin. (laughs) I I guess I always think the best way is to talk a little bit about the main character, because that's your way into the story. So that can be our listeners' way in as well. So the main character, her name is Sora Nealon, and maybe you could say who she is, and in particular, why do we find her at the beginning of the book breaking into a house? <laughs> yeah, well, Sur is in her late twenties. Um, she's been living a slacker's existence in Dayton, Ohio, um, going from McJob to McJob. Um, she really only has one skill, uh, which is uh, that when she was a teenager, she used to break into houses, and she was pretty good at it. But she hasn't done that in many years. One day, though, she uh, learns that her father has been murdered, and apparently, for some reason, uh, whoever killed him might be coming after her, too. Uh, The thing is that he seems to have anticipated this because he's left her some kind of a bequest. Um, Part of it, if she breaks into their former family home to, uh, to get it from where he's hidden it, is an entirely new identity that he seems to have prepared for her. Uh, And the rest of the request is even stranger, but she has to survive to be able to find out (laughs) all the details about that. That's right. And so she discovers that perhaps the people who have killed her dad are after her. And so, yes, that new identity, I guess the father anticipated something like this. But Very quickly, she finds that to further elude them, she has to enter the world of virtual reality or virtual games, actually. And then she very quickly finds out that these games are more than just games. They're like an underground economy, except that they're not really underground because they are literally above ground, but they're invisible to the non-virtual world. So can you explain how Sura can use this virtual world and economy to hide? And how does this game world function as an economy? Someone could participate and 
be playing a game and they have tasks to complete. And yet that can also translate into food and shelter and allow Sora to remain hidden even though she's walking the streets of, say, Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pretty crazy scenario now that you've described it to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did I get it right? Did I do it right? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, and uh, the thing is, it's uh, we're about 15 years in the future and uh, smart glasses are really common. Uh, so there, it's augmented reality uh, where or mixed reality, really, where you wear these glasses uh, and they overlay extra features over the world around you. And of course, most of them um, are just ads. It's it's like inescapable adware following you everywhere. But on the, the, the sort of pirate channels, people play these augmented reality LARPs, live action role playing games, which are pretty exciting because the graphics are as good as, you know, uh, your PS4 or Xbox today, only it's going on around you in the real world. They can be pretty addictive and you uh, can take on a role as anything from a gangster or a spy to a, uh, an astronaut on an alien planet and, um, and have adventures that are partly virtual and partly in the real world. But here's the thing. When, when you have like a million players all out there in the streets at the same time doing stuff, you basically have an economy already. You've got, you know, a GDP. You've got people actually moving stuff around, affecting the world. And so the designers of these games at some point have realized that they can harness this and actually, in fact, turn these virtual quests into real effective actions uh, in the real world, coordinated across, again, you know, millions of players simultaneously. And they can do this with multiple overlapping realities not just one game going on, but dozens of different games that can coordinate, can, can trade between themselves. And each one has its own sort of reality and its own potentially currency, its own things that it values. But at the end of the day, all of that labor adds up to food on your table and a place to sleep for thousands and, and thousands of these players. Can you give a concrete example? I mean, for instance, at one point, someone asked Sora to go around and tag apple trees that no one's using. In other words, like they're on empty lots or unclaimed lots, and maybe people don't even know the apple trees are there, and tagging them with some kind of geotag so they can be mapped. Sure. And she gets paid. I mean, she gets some kind of cryptocurrency payment, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. So how does this serve... A goal in both the game and in the real world, or so-called, I guess, the real world. I mean, the world with people who aren't using the virtual reality glasses. Yeah. So um, right now, in the real world, there is a mind-boggling amount of labor going on that is not accounted for in the traditional economy. So uh, all the domestic work that uh, uh, women do in the home, for instance, we're just beginning to, um, to, to treat as labor. And in the economy of things that are owned, like production lines and, and, and uh, fleets of vehicles and so on, anytime that all of that machinery is not working for the people who own it, it's essentially sitting idle. 
So what the, the, the game designers have started to do is they've started to use those spare cycles of uh, material and, uh, and time and uh, machinery and to, and to find all the things that are there but aren't accounted for in the traditional economy. People's labor when they're playing the games is, is, is one obvious example, but also things like uh, uh, apple trees in the park and um, all kinds of uh, trades and, and uh, exchanges that, that we don't have a way of accounting for, but they do. So when the game world and the real world economy interact, you use a concept called frames to describe that interaction or frame worlds. Could you explain what that is? I guess I don't want to get too technical for, for listeners, but they're, they're interesting concepts that your characters get to know. And so the readers get to know these concepts, too, because the characters are introduced to them and then they start applying them. And it's kind of fascinating how you build the world and understanding by introducing these concepts. So, so there's a few of them I guess I wanted to explore, like the idea of a frame or frame world. Yeah, well, that idea comes from design and um, uh, my degrees in design. And really, I, I pulled ideas from all over the place for this book. And I, I, uh, I didn't really originate very many ideas, in fact. This is a pastiche of things that are all out there, but that you know, a lot of people don't, uh, don't know about. And when you're doing sort of uh, frame-based design work, what you're, you're looking for is the um, kind of the story that people are telling themselves about what they're doing. And um, they may come to you with uh, an, an ask that, that you know that something's not working in their business or uh, community or whatever. But when you look at the way they frame their situation to you, you realize that if they just looked at it in a different way, use a different metaphor, for instance, for uh, for what they're doing, then they could solve the problem. So, for instance, if you look at mental patients. As patients, that's the a particular frame that you're looking through, and your uh, whole approach to them in the community is going to be based around uh, medical centers and regular appointments and and medication and, and all of these things. But if you look at them as people on sabbatical from sort of a regular job environment, you can actually see them as potential resource in the community. So you've shifted your frame. And now what you want to do is find out how you can employ the capabilities that these people do have that uh, you might not recognize if you were trying to fit them into the frame of disabled employee, for instance. Uh, so that's an example of shifting frames. And uh, there are organizations around the world that do this kind of frame analysis, uh, both commercially and uh, uh, for um, governments um, and, uh, and communities. So in Stealing Worlds, this whole mode of analysis becomes the basis of the games. The games are built on the idea that you look at the world and you see a problem, and then you look at the world as if it were a different world, and you see different possibilities. And because they're playing these augmented reality games, they can literally make a different world, lay it over top of ours, see how it fits, see what the possibilities are, and play it through. And then if, it, uh, if what it's doing works, 
then it gets progressively more and more real. And this is what Sura discovers as she's going down the rabbit hole, um, trying to uh, escape these possible murderers and, and find out who's uh, killed her dad. She gets almost literally terminally distracted by discovering this basically new America that's being built in the, the ruins of the old industrial uh, economy. Another important idea and one that we hear about all the time and some people are more familiar with than others is the idea of cryptocurrencies. And you extend that to the idea of individuals and you take it even further. But let's start with just people because the people who play these games need a tattoo that contains some kind of encrypted ID uh, identification and that gives them self-sovereignty, which means, if I understand it correctly, that they have control over basically everything in their life, you know, what anyone knows about them, their medical records, their assets. They can decide who sees what. And it's sort of the antidote to the way things are today, where our identities and basically any bit of information about us is for sale. Right. And this is a really important uh, idea because it's it's real, it's in the real world right now, and it's relevant to all of us. Your example of medical records is a great one because uh, who should have those? Who should control those? What Sura uh, is able to do is uh, stuff all of the information about her, about herself, into the, the encrypted data that only she controls. And if somebody asks for some of it, she can parcel out whatever is uh, appropriate without giving it all away. So this is the self-sovereignty that's at the heart of the uh, the, the frame worlds, uh, the, the ability of each person to control uh, their own identity. And in fact, to have multiple identities in multiple worlds that are all coordinated by this central singular ID. In order for that to work, if I understand it correctly, Sora needs to regain control, though, over all those records because anything about her already presumably is out there in the real world. I guess she's creating a new identity and she's starting from scratch. And so is that how she retains control because she's building a new, a new record of herself? Yeah. Uh, in, in, in Sura's case, she's basically lost all, all control over the, you know, the person that she used to be. But uh, her ability to create a, uh, a new identity gives her um, uh, sort of a, literally a, a new lease on life. She creates a persona uh, named uh, Countess Vesta, who is a, a kind of steampunk European uh, nobility who has character traits completely unlike Suras. Uh, but if you've ever played a role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you know that the most innocent people will end up being the chaotic evil ones in the game. People will have real Jekyll and Hyde transformations when they role-play. And uh, as Countess Vesta, she's capable of doing things that she never could uh, in her old life. And, you know, all the data about her old life is uh, is less and less important because she's able to use the cryptocurrencies inside the games and um, trade and virtualize her whole world. She has an inventory, for instance, like any game. And she can store things in the inventory like uh, couches, chairs, uh, an apartment when she earns an apartment. But then she can, in this case, 
actualize these in the real world because of the way the games work. Uh, if she wants to have a real apartment, she can take it out of her inventory and make it make it real as long as there's an available one uh, controlled by the games uh, for her to use. And when she's done with it, she stuffs it back in her inventory. <laughs> very, very hard to wrap your head around, I know. But um, it's an overlap, basically, of uh, game worlds and, and, and reality. And she takes full advantage of it. Well, even harder to get my mind around personally is the idea that objects can also have self-sovereignty. And I want to get to that because that's a very important core part of the book, I think, that Sora is finally led to understand. And it starts out sort of innocently enough. She, she at one point, humorously gets into an argument with a snippy bag of groceries that she's getting paid I think it was by a church to deliver to an elderly parishioner. Right. And the groceries, I forget what they're telling her, something like, hurry up, it's hot out, we have to get there. Yeah. And they're self-interested and they have agency and they can express their opinion and their goal is to be delivered to the person who's supposed to use them and consume them. And that's one aspect of it. And then Stealing World's takes Sora and the reader to a point where you realize that any inanimate object can have self-sovereignty. So a city's water system can, for instance. And it doesn't have to be inanimate. It could be animate in the sense of being a tree or a forest or, I suppose, a bear or something. They can have this kind of self-sovereignty. So can you talk about that, what that means, how a, I guess I would say, non-human actor could play a role in this virtual economy and be self-aware? Like, what is actually allowing it to do this? And then there's a concept of, and I might say this wrong, deodand that you bring up, which I think is interrelated. So before I get all snarled up in it, um, I'm going to stop talking and let you explain it. Well, it's... Um... It's pretty straightforward, actually. Uh, when you're playing a, a, a computer game, you might have encounters with NPCs, right? Non-player characters. And those are controlled by the computer, and they have their own fake personalities um, and uh, uh, may hinder or help you on whatever quest you're on. So when you're playing in these augmented reality games, you can have interactions with NPCs that are, you know, virtually on the street next to you or whatever. But the game can just as easily assign that NPC to something real in your environment, like, say, a car or a tree. And now you have a tree talking to you. So this is where it starts. But uh, what happens is that these uh, NPCs get sort of separated out from the games and it's it's not that they become artificially in, in, intelligent in in you know the uh, the sort of skynet sense and and divorce themselves it, it's it's just that these characters turn out to be a great interface to the world to cars and trees and all the things around you that you might not pay attention to because you've never had to deal with them as as people before. Literally, it's a process of turning uh, the inanimate into the animate. As long as you're wearing the glasses, but also, of course, these these uh, these systems can uh, live on the internet. And eventually, AI does come into it, where trees, forests, watersheds, lakes, 
all have a personality attached to them that thinks it is that watershed, lake, river, or, or, or forest, and acts in its own best interests. These are the deodands. So by this time, Sura's fallen well and truly down the rabbit hole. And it's a good thing she has some friends that she's made along the way, like a, a crazy bounty hunter who, who catches her earlier in the novel, but is, uh, she manages to convince to come over to her side. Otherwise, uh, she'd be completely lost in this world. Because there's things like uh, uh, the Deodans, but also the Actants, which are suicidal um, versions of the same software. There, there's there's one that thinks it is the Flint water supply and wants to do away with itself. Because because it's contaminated? Because it's contaminated, yes. And there there are actants that think they are air pollution, and there are actants that think they are uh, diseases. And, and, and they, as game characters, have the same kind of economic potential that Sura herself has. They act, they accumulate funds, they uh, they buy and they sell to to try and reach their own ends. So it starts to become a strange kind of utopia that um, Sura finds herself wandering through, where uh, pieces of the world wake up and take responsibility for themselves and, and start defending themselves against uh, humanity and befriend uh, people like her. But how does a tree know what's in its best interest? I mean, humans don't always know what's in their best interest, and humans are sometimes suicidal. We clearly do things that are self-destructive. So what's the mechanism? I mean, is there an underlying program that someone created that moves things towards some definition of thriving and replication or some notion of balance or... Sure. There's 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 two things that converge to make this possible, and and when you think about it, they it almost looks inevitable. First of all, there's environmental monitoring, uh, which is getting increasingly sophisticated and more and more fine grained all the time. So, you know, satellites look down from orbit. Um, there's uh, Internet of Things uh, sensors uh, everywhere. Um, soon, every forest is going to be scattered with thousands of these things that are monitoring humidity and uh, mold and and all kinds of things. And there are algorithms and programs developed over generations by ecologists and environmentalists precisely to figure out how healthy a forest or a river is, for instance, in ecological terms. Um, so that's happening anyway. So the tree can a tree could access that information then, presumably, and say, oh, the carbon's rising or lowering or the nutrients are changing in the soil and I'm going to now advocate for a change in the use of fertilizers or... Yeah, uh, to, to, to be specific, a piece of software that lives on the internet and thinks it is the tree is doing this accessing um, and, and making these calculations. You could have a horrible nightmare world where all of these things are owned by someone, but I don't want to give away too much. <laughs> um, but it's also possible that they could own themselves. Again, the self-sovereign objects. It's the world coming to life. For you, clearly, science fiction is a laboratory of ideas. I think it is for a lot of science fiction writers, but I saw on your website that as a professional futurist, you teach others how to use storytelling to communicate complex issues more clearly. 
So I was wondering if Stealing Worlds is an example of that, of your attempt to communicate these complicated ideas in a narrative format to make them more understandable and also, of course, entertaining, because it's also a mystery and a thriller as well. Well, yeah, there's certainly an element of that. I do have a lot of ideas and I want to get them out of my head, uh, which is why I write fiction. And I'm unabashedly uh, political and sort of activist in, in my approach to the world, while not being able to identify with any movement on any part of the political spectrum. So um, <laughs> I kind of have to invent my own worlds to, uh, to describe what I, what I believe and, and, and what I passionately feel. But at the same time, I, I, you know, I love storytelling. And in this case, I had the character of uh, Sura in my head and, and, and the voice of that character in my head for several years. And it was so strong that I simply had to get it out. <laughs> I, had, I had to write about her. And uh, this was the story that came out. In a sense, you know, I'm, uh, I'm sort of hanging on to Sura's coattails as she goes through this adventure. And I, I, I was finding out what was going to happen next myself as, as, as we went along. Um, so it was, it was marvelous fun to do and absolutely nothing like writing a polemic or, uh, or an essay to try and get your ideas, you know, out in the world. But, you know, storytelling is really one of the most powerful ways to communicate ideas. There's a fellow named Brian Boyd who wrote a book called uh, uh, On the Origin of Stories. Um, and he claims, based on his research, that narrative is the default mode of understanding of the human mind. What that means is that if your mind can understand an idea in narrative terms, it automatically will. We are all always constantly translating the stuff that comes to us from the world into stories or into parts of some grand narrative in, in, inside our minds. We do it automatically and unconsciously. And if you're able to uh, take ideas that you've got and express them in story form, then you've tapped into the most powerful mode of communication that humanity's ever developed. So then how many of the ideas in Stealing Worlds do you think or do you hope can be realized in the real world. As you say, some of them exist in some form on some level. It's a story. It's fiction. It's, you know, the characters are made up and it's, you know, fantastical and entertaining. But clearly, you know, as you said, there are a lot of ideas that you wanted to get out there. And you are a futurist as well. So you think a lot about what is practical, I suppose, or not practical uh, for the future. So how much of this idea of, is it a virtual economy? Is it people, uh, self-sovereignty for individuals and objects? I mean, how much of that do you think is practical and, and maybe wise? Well, one of the games I like to play is uh, to see how much I can come up with that could actually happen when, when I'm writing stories. Uh, I think it's far more wonderful. I mean, far more sense of wonder kind of provoking to read about something that's magical and amazing and then discover that it could happen uh, as, as opposed to uh, just forever remaining a fantasy. And uh, 
almost everything in Stealing Worlds is, as far as I know, quite possible. I uh, researched most of the ideas with people in the cryptocurrency and uh, technology communities and um, uh, also did a lot of studying on in, in, uh, economics and um, uh, what's called post-autistic economics, um, <laughs> which is fascinating in and of itself. And uh, I am, in fact, currently trying to create a deodand with some um, friends of mine. So we'll see if that project works. If it does, then something new will have come into the world and it'll be pretty cool. Wait, so it's a deodand. What is it giving awareness to or an identity to or self-sovereignty? I'm not even sure how to describe it, but it's a it's a an inanimate thing or well uh they they sort of almost exist right now uh, the the wanganui river in new zealand um was granted legal personhood a few years ago in fact lake erie was granted legal personhood uh in ohio um last february so about a year ago which means that citizens of ohio can litigate on behalf of the lake and uh, there's, a, there's a board of, of governance that essentially acts as a ward or, or acts uh, as the, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They act in on behalf of. Like a guardian? Yeah, the, sorry, the guardian, yeah. They are the guardian of the Wanganui River. And those are not isolated examples. Uh, legal personhood to natural systems uh, is a uh, becoming a movement, actually. And it's uh, across the whole world. And uh, all that I've done is suggest that you could replace the the board of people with an algorithm. Only r- rather than being a uh, an algorithm that's dedicated to pulling profit out of uh, uh, people, it would be an algorithm dedicated to um, uh, maximizing some measure of the health of that natural system. It's very straightforward and uh, no reason why we can't do it. It makes me think that in some ways we're hearkening back. And I don't mean this in any way negatively. It's interesting to me to a time when people believed that there were spirits that guarded particular rivers or lakes or forests. And what's it called when you give human-like qualities to something? Personification. (laughs) Right. They were personifying through these spirits and demigods and gods, the forest and these natural places. And now we've come full circle and are thinking about doing it again, but with an algorithm, something more concrete than the spiritual. Yeah. I'm saying that we have always had a powerful drive to do this. We have desperately, desperately wanted to um, speak to the world and have it speak back to us for our entire existence as a species. And now we can. In my first novel, Ventus, which uh, came out uh, 20 years ago, actually, uh, in, in 2000, I started to talk about this. And in some ways, I, I went much further in that novel than I do in Stealing Worlds. And the, the, the question that that book raised was, if you create something like this, is it just a fake? Is it your hand in the puppet talking back to you? Or if you cut all of your own ties to this AI, 
and let it live on it, exist on its own, does it become that real thing? Does it become that voice of the other that you've always wanted to hear speaking to you? Uh, is it a is it a mystical thing? Well, it's uh, it's some kind of strange marriage of technology and uh, animism. Yes, it, it, as I say, it's something new. And yes, I've written a science fiction novel about it. But no, I don't think there's uh, any reason why we can't create these things. Going down a different direction, I was curious about uh, your work with the Canadian Army because you do mention it in your biography. How have you used stories to help them? In what practical ways have you used stories to help them explore the future? Well, the, the Army is just one client that I've had. I guess it's the, the, the one that uh, showed up in the, in, in the bio. But um, I, I've, I've written fiction for clients ranging from UNESCO to uh, MIT Technology Review, um, uh, Intel, and yes, the Canadian government, uh, the U.S. Air Force. And uh, these are fictions in which the ideas are, aren't just sort of pulled out of the air. They, they come from um, actual futures studies, sometimes scenario or, or, uh, or horizon scanning uh, of the future that's been done by a particular working group that needs to then be synthesized uh, with the uh, the army stuff, I you know I joked that the, my job was to take these complicated stuff and uh, and, and render it down in, in a form so simple that even a four star general could understand it. Nice. But in fact, going back to you know Brian Boyd's uh, ideas about uh, the power of storytelling, uh, what stories allow you to do is bring together immense numbers of different ideas and get them all spinning and interacting at the same time uh, without people losing track of what's going on. We literally have a head for, for narrative. So you can pile immense amounts of complexity into a narrative and people will understand it uh, intuitively and, and seamlessly in a way that they will not understand a 400-page report. So um, a lot of organizations and governments are starting to discover this, and um, uh, they're increasingly employing people like myself to, uh, to do this kind of work. I ended up uh, doing my master's thesis on uh, this whole approach, and uh, I've been using it uh, quite successfully for about 15 years now. And can you just give me an example of a subject that you've turned into fiction that is a concrete investigation of a futuristic step forward? Well, about, uh, I don't know, maybe more than 15 years ago now, I, I wrote my first piece for the Canadian military. It was called Crisis in Zephyra. It was a story about a, uh, a mythical African city-state that uh, had called in uh, peacekeepers to try and uh, uh, police an election. And one of the ideas that I came up with now, bear in mind that this is the early 2000s, was the idea of using game engines to create live deep fakes of uh, atrocities happening around the city that would then get broadcast as if they were being broadcast live on TV in order to try and uh, derail the election process. So 15 or more years later, suddenly we've got deepfakes, you know, actually happening. 
So by presenting ideas back then that weren't necessarily possible at the time, it gave my clients a long runway to prepare. And whether or not they, they took advantage of that, you know, is, is a separate question. But you want to give people and organizations that, that runway, that, that ability to uh, uh, prepare for things well before they actually come to pass. Yeah, I don't think we're we're ready to deal with the fake fake story yet. I don't think anyone's figured that one out yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I actually a piece I did for MIT Technology Review last year was called "Noon in the Anti Library," and uh, it it takes the idea of deep fakes to uh, a horrifying sort of ultimate uh, point where entire internet's worth of uh, knowledge can be completely faked up. Uh, on the fly uh, and customized for every you know individual who might want to uh, you might want to influence. Oh, I hope the trees don't start doing that, having fake news about forest fires to scare the other trees. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah, right, that would be pretty bad. <laughs> so you said you have been hugely influenced by your Mennonite background, but you also said you were influenced by your progressive family, and I wondered how those factors shaped you as a person and as a writer? Well, you know, the Mennonites are um, an interesting mixture of conservative and uh, and radical because uh, uh, we were basically kicked out of every country in uh, Europe uh, for the crime of being pacifists. And when we weren't being kicked out, we were being literally killed heads heads put on fence posts um because we wouldn't join local you know militias and things like that so the mennonites have always as a result stood slightly apart with a slightly jaundiced view of all the politics going on around them so um uh, I, I kind of had that uh, as as part of my my upbringing but at the same time you know my 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 dad was the first television technician in the province of Manitoba. He he wired up the family farm in uh, like 1935, uh, uh, something like that, and uh, uh, and then proceeded to do all the neighbors and uh, and and then you know met my my mother who um, had won a governor general's award uh, for uh, science um, in in high school. Um, and uh, went on to write a couple of novels before she was like 25. And I grew up in a household full of books and full of inquiry and full of opinions about the world. And uh, uh, there is no way I would be the person I am today without uh, those massive influences on me. Well, you did say something earlier about not really having allegiance to one particular political polemic or point of view. So I guess that goes back to the skepticism, perhaps, of your Mennonite forebears and their experience. Yeah, it's probably true. I mean, when when you um, when you get betrayed often enough, and and when you learn to be all high and mighty in your your, your moral, <laughs> you know, stance as as the Mennonites often are. Then yes, you do develop this this uh, sort of jaundiced view of uh, politics in general. But I myself know that we have to be involved and we have to be engaged, and we can't step back from the world, uh, particularly at a, at a time when the uh, the natural world itself has become a political actor. 
you know, the climate is now a political agent and it is acting and it is having political effects on every country in the world. And this is the secret to why I wrote Stealing Worlds and, and wrote about a, uh, a world in which things wake up. Well, you know, partly it's a metaphor for what's actually happening. We've we've woken you know Godzilla. We've we've uh, disturbed the slumber of the monster in the deep, and now it's coming to eat us. And uh, we have to deal with that, and we have to learn how to negotiate with that monster. So whether it's metaphorically, as in uh, the the dead ends in in uh, stealing worlds, or whether it's in reality in figuring out how to reduce our uh, carbon emissions and uh, and mitigate the the rising oceans. We have to do it. Uh, my political engagement isn't necessarily like other people's political engagement, but maybe it's partly because I recognize a completely different cast of political actors. Again and again, I'm reminded that science fiction, you know, a lot of people think it's just far-flung future adventure or something, but it's so often rooted in the now and what we need to do now to avoid a particular outcome or to move towards a different outcome. I mean, the connection to the now is usually quite strong, and it's particularly strong in Stealing Worlds, I think. Well, I, I call Stealing Worlds a pre-apocalyptic novel. It's a story that's taking place in a, a liminal moment, a moment where the world could plunge in either direction into dystopian horror or, or into utopia. And um, it's really the story of Sura coming to realize that she's living in that moment and coming to uh, learn how she can actually have some agency in uh, tipping the balance in the direction that she wants. Uh, so ultimately, it's a, it's a hopeful novel, but it's living in that same moment that we're living in really, where things could go either way. Well, on that note, I think we can wrap it up. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining me on New Books and Science Fiction. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. I've been talking to Carl Schrader about Stealing Worlds, which came out from Tor Books last summer. Please subscribe to the show if you haven't yet, and consider leaving five stars on the review page, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our snappy theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. This podcast is part of the New Books Network. I'm Rob Wolf, and I produce and edit the individual episodes while the network's editor-in-chief and founder, Marshall Poe, with co-editor Leanne Wilson, keeps the not-for-profit network running. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.